Worldwide KFUO, a click away, 24 hours a day. Originating from the studios of KFUO Clayton, St. Louis, the messenger of good news. among the people and the church. So it is very important, especially in the Old Testament, when God says, I send you. You don't take the office and usurp it for yourself. All right, it says he's going to send them to a rebellious house. And God actually defines what a rebellious house is as we go on in Ezekiel. It's in Ezekiel chapter 12. And this is God's definition of a rebellious house. Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see, but see not, who have ears to hear, but hear not for they are a rebellious house. That is God's definition of a rebellious house. Basically, bottom line, you don't listen to the Word of God. You do not listen to the Word of God. The people in Ezekiel's time do not listen to the Word of God. Isaiah would say the same thing. Jeremiah would say the same thing. They would prophesy to them over and over again, but the people would not listen, would not repent, and went on their merry way. That's God's definition of a rebellious house. It will not listen to the word of God. 
Okay? Then he calls them impudent and stubborn. These are uh, modern words. The actual translations are brazen-faced and hard-hearted. Brazen-faced and hard-hearted. Brazen-faced refers to the outer, uh, outer countenance of a person. Hard, stubborn, and hard-hearted inside the person. Hard-hearted toward the Word of God will not listen. Okay? Now, he is to say, thus says the Lord. That phrase occurs 122 times in the book of Ezekiel. So 122 times God speaks through Ezekiel and says, thus says the Lord. Not Ezekiel's word. It's to be God's word. It's to be God's word. God leaves open the possibility that the people will hear, repent, and believe. If they do, it will be because of the word of God spoken to them. It will not be their decision, but it will be the word of God that is spoken to them and will change their hearts. All right? If they refuse to listen, it will not be God's fault, and it will not be the faithful prophet's fault. It will be their fault. It will be their fault. It's not God's fault. He sent his word and a prophet. It's not the prophet's fault. He was faithful in speaking that word. It will be the people who refuse to listen, it will be their fault. Okay? Any pastor during his ministry is at times going to say things that people don't like to hear. But he has to speak them because thus says the Lord. They have to be spoken to the people of God. But the people don't necessarily like it, okay? People don't necessarily like it. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, pastors today are not called to be successful. Are not called to be successful. That is up to God. They are called to be faithful. Called to be faithful. To faithfully speak the word of God. You know, we get kind of spoiled sitting around here at St. Paul's. Big church. 
lots of resources. We've been able to accomplish lots of things by God's grace, but there are lots of faithful churches and faithful pastors out there. Seventy-five members, a hundred members. The pastor preaches faithfully the Word of God every week. The congregation does everything they can to remain faithful. They never grow. It's frustrating at times. But we're not called to success. We're called to be faithful. Called to be faithful. I want to read the verses that come after our text. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. And the last word of our text, and whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. The call to faithfulness, the call to faithfulness, very, very important, okay? And that's what Ezekiel was called to do. He's not called to speak his own word. He was called to speak the word of God. All right, anything about that text you want to talk about? All right, we'll go to the epistle lesson. This is a well-known epistle lesson. Um, once again, let's, let's read through this. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses." Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. All right. What's going on here? Well, we have to have a little background information. And we kind of got to piece it together by what's said here. There were opponents of the Apostle Paul in Corinth, and they made certain accusations against the Apostle Paul to discredit his word and message. 
Scholars believe that one of the things they said about Paul, these opponents claim to have had visions and revelations of their own. And they questioned whether Paul had had any. I mean, if he's really a true apostle, surely he's had visions and revelations. Paul had misgivings about sharing these things. He would have rather kept them to himself. But since the accusation was lodged around him, he told about it. Not boastfully, as humbly as he could. So notice, he speaks about the person that had such a vision, not as I, 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 but as I know a man, a third party. Speaks of him as a third party. Now, as we read along, we realize it is the Apostle Paul, okay? But the thought was, now, everybody always gets hung up on the third heaven. So Paul doesn't, and we shouldn't either. The Jews believed that when you talked about the heavens, the first heaven was the atmosphere around the earth. And they talked about three heavens only from the standpoint as you went up and up. The third heaven was the highest one, and that's where God is. It was just a means of saying God is high above all. And therefore, we need not be concerned about distinguishing the realms above us. The Jews were simply referring to the highest of heavens where God himself is. That's what Paul meant by the third heaven. Uh, if he had meant more, he'd have given more details, and he gives none. None. No interest in the details of how. But God knows. God knows how this happened. Paul doesn't understand only God knows. It says he heard inexpressible things that cannot be uttered. Evidently, these false teachers were happy to tell you about all their visions and revelations. Paul simply says, what I saw can't be spoken of. They're too high for us. So, he would not boast of his vision or what he saw. He did not want anyone judging him based on his secret visions. He wanted to be judged only, only, by the gospel message he preached.
He didn't want the people believing because he had a better vision than the other guy. He wanted people believing only based on the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, now let's go on, because in 7, we learn that this third party is the Apostle Paul. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. All right. The thorn can also be translated by stake, S-T-A-K-E. We do not know what it was. There have been all kinds of conjectures over the years. We do not know. If Satan was going to disrupt the preaching of the gospel, one way to do it is to go after the Apostle Paul. Okay? After the Apostle Paul. And so, he had this thorn in the flesh. We go on. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. He begged God three times to take it away. How many times do we pray for God to stop our suffering? Okay? Lots. Lots. God didn't. And God may not in our lives. God's answer, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Okay? We've heard that passage many times. We have a prayer in the church agenda that asks that people be healed, but if not, give them the grace to accept their affliction. That's what Paul had to do. He gave him the grace to accept this affliction and know that it was going to be with him all his life or until God saw fit to take it away. So, what does Paul do in response to that answer? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul came to boast in his weaknesses because the weaknesses were a sure sign that God's grace was going to be upon him and he would have the power to endure. He knew that in his weakness, God's power made him strong and his ministry of the gospel strong. When I am weak by human standards, then I am strong by God's standards. 
because God works through what appears to the world to be weak. Jesus Christ being born in a stable is the appearance of weakness, and yet it was the power of God. Jesus Christ, having nowhere to lay his head, is an appearance of weakness. Being nailed to a cross is the worldly appearance of weakness. And yet in those very things, God was showing his strength, his power. And he was going to do the same thing in Paul's life. In service to Christ, there is no guarantee for freedom from trouble. God does not promise that. When we are weak physically in our lives, in our spiritual lives, God will use his power to work through it. God's grace is always enough and more. Always enough and more. Now, we've all had things in our life that made us feel very weak. And yet what we're being told here is God is going to use those times to make us strong, to use our weakness, to show forth his strength to others. He works best when we are not boastful, not touting our own strength, but when we appear to the world to be weak. Christian faith appears to the world to be weak in our day, and yet it is the still that where the gospel is preached is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. The world doesn't see it, the world doesn't know it, but that's where the power of God is manifest through the preaching of the gospel and through the sacraments. God is doing powerful things that the world will always miss. We will miss them many times because our eyes of faith are not on we tend to look at worldly things. But what Paul is reminding us here is God's going to work powerful things, okay, through our weakness, through our weakness. All right, any questions, comments on this lesson? Yeah, Mark. Right. Correct. Jesus Christ did not always use his divine powers. Imagine if he'd have struck everybody dead that said a word he didn't like. 
Okay? Well, there wouldn't have been any Pharisees left. No Sadducees. Uh, Pilate was a goner. Okay? He'd have just marched right into Rome and thrown them all out. But he didn't. He humbled himself. Part of what we teach about Christ is he humbled himself to the point that he could save us. Casting people aside, responding to them with vengeance would not have saved us. Might have made him feel real good. Might make us feel real good if we did it. But it wouldn't have saved us from sin, death, and Satan. So he put his power aside, and yet you can literally say in putting his power aside to go to the cross, he had more power. So God just doesn't work the way we do. He just doesn't work the way we do. He takes the weak and brings forth power and strength. And sometimes it shocks us, too, just what he does. Other comments? All right, let's go to the gospel. Now, the first part of this gospel, we'll look at that. He went away from there and came to his hometown. That would have been Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. All right, any time a guest rabbi would come to the town, he would be asked to teach in the synagogue. It was standard procedure, especially when the hometown boy showed up. Problem was, they knew him and his family. He was trained by Joseph in manual labor to be a carpenter. He had had no formal religious training, and formal religious training in that day would have been training sitting at the feet of other rabbis. He had had none of that. So they knew who he was, and they thought they knew where he had come from. And now he's got all this authority. And they were offended. Basically, they said to themselves, this kid that we know knows how to be a carpenter, not a rabbi. 
So there's no way we're going to listen to him and his authority. This is where this ties in with the Old Testament lesson. Because I'm sure many said, we know Ezekiel. Ezekiel ain't much. All of a sudden he says, thus says the Lord. We know the way he used to be. We're not going to listen. They did the same to Jesus. Jesus became an offense to them, even in his own hometown, because he wasn't what they thought he should be. He wasn't the carpenter, the son of Mary. He was speaking with the authority of God because he is God. But they couldn't get past his past. They couldn't get past him. There's no way this guy can do this, can teach this way. By now they had heard of many of his miracles. They just rejected it. They just rejected it. So it, it's like, you know, we ordained Aaron Sterling two weeks ago. It's like saying, well, we knew that kid when he was growing up, and there ain't no way he's a pastor. Okay? I got classmates I went to school with at the seminary and their district presidents, and I'm having a hard time believing it because I knew what they did in college. A prophet is not accepted in his hometown because we all have images of how they were, okay? So, basically, they take offense at him. So what does Jesus do? Jesus said to them, his prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Okay, let's talk about this. The emphasis should not be on the inability of Jesus to do miracles because of the people's unbelief. He marveled at their unbelief, that it was so great. Jesus did not do miracles in the absence of faith. If he did, it might aggravate the human guilt, and lead to a hardening of hearts. Unbelief by the people of Nazareth closed the door to the disclosure of God's grace that others had experienced. In other words, they rejected him. If he'd have done a miracle right in front of them, they would have rejected that. How many times did Jesus 
perform a miracle, and in the next sentence, the Pharisees said, show us a sign, because they didn't see it. There's no faith. So Jesus doesn't do miracles there because they wouldn't know him if they saw him. Wouldn't know him if they saw him. And there is unbelief. He, I tell you, it's pretty bad. You know, there are several horrible statements in the Bible. He marveled at their unbelief. That's one of them. Another one is when he healed the, the uh, demoniac at Gennesaret. And the last line was, the people ask him to leave their country. <laughs> Asking God to leave. Boy, that's smart. But that's where unbelief leads. That's where unbelief leads. So, they slammed the door on Jesus making his self known to them, himself known to them, because they f refused to believe in him. The people of Israel more than likely did the same to Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. Now, so, and then he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So, the disciples had now been with Jesus for some time. And he thought they were ready. They had heard him teach. They had seen him do miracles. And I am sure that besides what we see in here in the scriptures, he had many private times with his disciples that he taught them further out of the hearing of the crowds. So now he sends them. Back to sending. Back to sending. God sent Ezekiel. Jesus sends the disciples. They don't do this on their own. Okay? So, the disciples now are an extension of Jesus' ministry. They are going out now, and he sends them two by two. Uh, much of that is because of the Old Testament testifying that the word is confirmed 
by two or three witnesses. Okay? Two or three witnesses. So they go out in twos. Okay? Notice that he makes it clear that they may, must trust God completely and totally. They are to take no extra provisions of any kind. They are simply to go. They would have to trust God for everything. If someone received you into their home, you were not to bounce around from house to house. So if you were asked into someone's home, and someone with a nicer home asked you into their house, you were not to leave the first one lest you insult the people that opened their door to you. So they were not to bounce around from house to house looking for a better deal. They were to stay where the house was open to them. Now, if they were rejected, they were to shake off the dust of their feet. Now, what does this mean? In Jewish times, when the Jews would travel into Gentile territory, when they re would return to Jewish territory, they would shake off the dust from their feet because anything Gentile made you unclean. Therefore, to show that you were back in Jewish territory, you would shake off the dust of the Gentile territory before you entered the Jewish territory. Jesus is now telling them, because they are in Jewish territory, that if anyone rejects them, and their message. It wasn't just them, it was really the message they were bringing. They should shake off the dust of their feet against them. In other words, treat them like Gentiles. Now all the Jews understood what it was to shake off the dust of your feet. So you can imagine when the disciples may have left the village and the last act was to shake off the dust of their feet, they were treating that village as if they were Gentiles. That would not go over well. Okay? But that's what Jesus told them to do. Further, it was not only that they were not shown hospitality, but it was to disassociate themselves with the unbelief in that town. Ultimately, 
It was a warning that those who rejected their message would have to answer to God. This was a prophetic act to invoke the villagers to think about what they were doing and how serious it was that the disciples would shake off the dust of their feet against them. They better think about the message the disciples had brought. It was important. So this is the way Jesus instructed them. Uh, I don't think it's any by chance that this account is here because he's referring to Nazareth. Nazareth, Nazareth, his own hometown, uh, had rejected him. What happens to those that reject him? He not only marvels at their unbelief, but he shakes off the dust of his feet against them. You better reconsider. You better think about this before you go that far as to reject Jesus and ultimately Jesus' disciples as an extension of his ministry. So um, this, this kind of ends tough. Uh, it doesn't begin any better. I mean, it begins with unbelief, uh, and, and it ends, frankly, with a warning against unbelief. So it's, it's, uh, it's back to that power thing. Jesus was judged by outward appearances. We're told he was nothing special to look at in Isaiah 53. And yet, how many times do we judge things, even as Christians, by outward appearances instead of by what's in the heart, what God is working in the heart? So you could do that with one of the prophets from the Old Testament. You could do that with Jesus. But by judging only on outward appearance and by being a rebellious house and not listening we miss. We miss what God is trying to do through very humble means. They wanted powerful means. They wanted a powerful king to free them from Rome. God sent them a servant, and they missed it. We all need to, with eyes of faith, look at things that happen around us and realize that God is working. God is working. That's the theme for the school next year. God is at work. Okay? God is at work not only building a new building, but God is at work in the hearts of every Christian. We need to see that the power isn't in the trappings of the world and in outward appearances, but we better listen to the Word of God. And that may share with us 
and open our eyes of faith to see more than we are seeing. Much more. All right, comments about that lesson? Yeah, Jacob. Well, no, I wouldn't go that far. Uh, I don't know that there is excommunication practice this day uh, in a lot of places, but I think it's simply a warning to repent, a warning to repent, to say, to, to take a fresh look at this, and only thing can bring people to repentance is the Word of God. And so it's a call to hear, it's a call to listen, it's a call to pay attention and not judge by these outward appearances, okay? Not judge by these outward appearances. You couldn't say it was that simply because these people will hear of Jesus again and have other opportunities to believe. So um, a warning to hear. He who has ears, let him hear. All right, other thoughts? Yes, Paul. They do. And the Jesus that the world comes up with is basically somebody that will tolerate and put up with anything because he loves everybody. And they completely ignore the law, they completely ignore the Word of God. What Jesus said, they are like that rebellious house, okay? They think they know Jesus. It's not the Jesus we know. Not the Jesus we know. All right, anything else? All right, let's close. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. See you next week.